Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We will pick up where we left last Sunday. Last Sunday was our first um, sermon here in the series through Romans 8, and I hope you were encouraged. I hope that you um, obeyed Jan's call last Sunday and you were in Romans. I don't know if you all read Romans 8 30 times. Uh, but that's okay. The law is often hard to obey. Um, and so this is just another reminder of the grace that we so desperately need. Romans chapter 8. We will probably read it 30 times before we're all done uh, going through Romans 8. Well, as you go there, we're going to be focusing on verses 3 through 4. Romans 8, 3 and four, and, and I want to ask you a question. It's a very simple question, but nonetheless, it's a very deep question. What is the gospel? The gospel, we, we so often throw this word around. Do you believe the gospel, right? Do you know the gospel? Do you share the gospel? Gospel, good news, right? Euangelion, the good news. We are evangelicals, right? We believe in the gospel. That's what it means. But do we understand, do we know what the gospel is? In other words, let me ask you uh, this way. Is the declaration that one must be converted the gospel? Or the statement that we must repent and believe, is that the gospel? Or the proclamation that you must be born again, is that the gospel? Is this what we believe the content and the glory and the power of the gospel is. I think we need to be thinking biblically about this so that we don't declare something to be good news that isn't, that isn't. What is the gospel? Well, when Paul explains to us the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news of salvation, friends, he exclusively refers to the great work achieved by God, what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing. Listen, good news is something that has happened. Like a healthy child is born. That's good news, right? Uh, a man was saved from a wildfire. He was rescued. That's good news. All the passengers, they were rescued off of a sinking ship. That's good news. Physician told you on your last checkup, the cancer you were struggling with is gone. There is no trace of cancer at all. That's good news. That's glorious news. Something outside yourself has been done and it is now told to you. That is the gospel. Last week we look at this declaration in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation, friend. You are free to go. Now, the obvious question, how is this possible? How is it possible for us to be set free, to be liberated from the bondage of sin? And Paul gives us an answer in verses 3 and 4. And these verses are some of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture. Because verse 3 begins with 4, 
Notice, if you look at verse 3, we'll read the first four verses in just a minute. But verse 3 begins with four. It explains how it is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I want you, again, to focus with me at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 4. And we will look at these two verses in our remaining time together. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As we wrap our minds around uh, these two verses, I, I just want to propose to you, as, as I usually do, the, the big idea of these verses, and that is this. God took care of our sin and became our substitute so that we might live for our Savior. God took care of our sin and became our substitute so that we might live for our Savior. Our sin, our substitute, and our Savior. Now, how is it possible that we can declare with 100% certainty, friends, this morning, right now, not when we'll get there later, but today, now, how can we now declare that we're not under condemnation? I want us to consider three things here, three points. Number one, the work of the Father. The Father sent his Son to pay the penalty for our sins. Again, I want this to ring true in your mind as we go through these verses. God did it. God did it. How did this happen? He did it. And Paul tells us how he did it in verse 3. He sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin. But he begins here, notice in verse 3, with an explanation by speaking, right, about the law, the law of Moses, the commandments and, and the requirements. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And if we had gone through Romans verse by verse, beginning with Romans 1 and all the way to Romans 8, then, then we would have learned something about the law. And I just want to give you a quick survey of what Paul had said already about the law. For instance, in, in Romans 3.20, you could flip there if you want, but in Romans 3.20, Paul says that the law cannot justify anyone. Law only exposes sin. In Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. If you go to 4.14, Paul says that the law brings forth wrath. For the law brings about wrath. It exposes sin, and then it brings forth wrath. In 5.20, the next chapter, law increases transgression. In other words, if there is no speed limit sign, everybody goes however you know, fast they want, and then there is no law. But as soon as you put a 65 speed limit sign, then all of a sudden all of these transgressors begin to multiply. Why? Because there's law that, that exposes. And, and really we have this principle in us to always break the law. 
right? We, we all have seen these no trespassing signs. And as soon as we pass by no trespassing sign, what do we want to do? Always. We want to trespass, right? How many of us have seen these, uh, you know, pick up after your dog signs, you know, on our lawns in our neighborhoods? Everybody puts them out, right? And nobody obeys them. Everybody does exactly the opposite, right? Because we have this principle in us to just break the law of God. Romans 7, 12 through 16, or 12 and 16, Paul says, listen, even though the law was there and it increases trans- uh, tran- uh, transgressions, the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is good. Romans 7, verse 12 and verse 16. So again here, if you go back to 8.3, Paul reminds his readers that the law is weak and it is unable to make you free. You are free, friends, not because of the law. Because the problem is not with the law, but the problem is with sinful flesh. Because it literally says, for what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, weakened through the flesh. So if you go to the previous chapter, verse 7, or chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, Paul says this, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death to me? Paul says, may it never be. Law is not the cause of death, but sin is. He says, rather it was sin. So our fallen nature made perfect obedience impossible. Our fallen nature made perfect obedience impossible. Because think about this. This is exactly what God requires, right? What kind of obedience does God require? He requires perfect. He requires exact, entire, and perpetual. Means ongoing, continual obedience. If you like the acronym PEEP, that's what God requires. Perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual but none of us have it, right? How many of you claim to to have this kind of obedience? And that is precisely Paul's point here in verse three. God intervenes, why? Because we are unable. None of us can offer to God what God requires. For what the law could not do because it was weakened by our flesh, God did. God accomplishes it. How? And in my paraphrase of verse three, it will be, This God condemned sin in the flesh. That is the main idea in verse three. If you read verse three, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God, and then skip to the very end of the verse, condemned sin in the flesh. That is the main thought here. The main clause of verse three. God condemned sin in the flesh. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin or as a sin offering. So I want us to look at these parts here. God sent his own son. Again, God did it. How is there no condemnation? He did it. How did he do it? He sent his only begotten son. God did it. The triune God, think about this section. The father, the son, and the spirit, they accomplished what no man could ever do. This is one of these but God verses. I don't know, have you ever come up with... um, come across but God verses in scripture? Like there are a couple in Romans. Romans chapter five, go there with me, Romans chapter five, six, 
6 says, For while we were yet helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And verse 8, But God demonstrates, right, his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God, we were ungodly, we were sinners, but God intervened. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, bad news, period, no, but God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, but the free gift of God. Ephesians chapter two, very famous, right? Verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse three, and by nature were children of wrath, even as the rest, bleak, presence, bleak future. You were dead, but God, verse four, made you alive together with Christ, but God. There's another one, great one in Acts 13, 28, Acts 13, 28, Speaking of of Jesus Christ, it says this, and though they found no ground to put him to death, they asked Pilate that he, Jesus, would be executed, but God raised him from the dead. But God intervened. God intervened in raising his son from the dead. And so what is the point here in Romans chapter 8 Verse three, what is the point? God takes the initiative and intervenes when all hope is lost. When humanity is condemned, he takes actions, action and look what he does. He sends his own, and this is very important, he sends his own son. And it points to this very close relationship between the father and the son. And think about this, this was no um, you know, prophet that God sent. God sent a lot of prophets before. Lots of messengers. There were lots of sent ones before to communicate God's will. But this messenger is different. It's his own. It's his own son that he sends. This one's unique, the very son of God. And what does that demonstrate? That demonstrates to us the depth of God's love. It, it kind of reminds me of Genesis 22 too. Remember when God appears to Abraham and, and he says, Abraham, Take your son, and he doesn't just leave it there. No, your loved son, the one that you love, right? Your very son, your own son. Just let's, let's get this clear. I want you to take your son. And, and this is exactly what God does. He takes his own son, and he sends him in the likeness of sinful flesh. So how did Jesus come? This is very important. And and. Uh, The way Paul structures this verse here, or this phrase, in the likeness of human flesh here, uh, it is very carefully structured in order to emphasize two truths, very important truths about Jesus. That is his incarnation and his perfection. Incarnation and his perfection. John Stott says this, not in sinful flesh, because the flesh of Jesus was sinful, Not in the likeness of flesh because the flesh of Jesus was real, but in the likeness of sinful flesh because of the flesh of Jesus was both sinless and real. It's a very, very important truth. Incarnation. Jesus, friends, he did not appear to have a human body as many people, even in the early church, emphasized. 
and taught this heresy that Jesus really didn't take on the body like us. He just appeared to be human. But Paul and so many authors, right, all the authors of the New Testament, they affirm the reality of his bodily incarnation. He took on exactly the same body as our body. Exactly the same body. He looked just like every other man before him. He took on this second nature, Philippians chapter two. And this second nature of his was subjected to the same limitations and weaknesses as our nature. He was tired, he slept, right? He ate. He was exactly the same like us. Jesus became one of us. Look how the author of Hebrews puts it in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, this is what we made up of, he himself, Jesus, likewise, also partook of the same. In verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to become like us, have exact, go through the same thing that we do, and then lay this body like ours down for other sinners. But there's a huge difference between Christ and us in that he was sent and he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did not have any sin. He was perfect. Although he looked the same, he was not sinful. And this is very, very important. That is why Jesus was miraculously conceived in Mary's womb. He came as the perfect one, truly flesh and blood, so that we here who are sitting this morning, right, could know and could have confidence that we're not facing any temptations that are not, right, that he hasn't gone through. Because Hebrews 4.15 says, he has been tempted in all things yet without sin, yet without sin. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, right? He knew no sin. God made him who, what? Knew no sin. So this is very precious, and this very precious son, God's very son, he takes on human flesh and he remains sinless. Friends, of all the people who ever lived, Jesus is the only one who did not deserve to die. The only one who had to live on perpetually, forever, eternally. Jesus is the only person who lived who did not deserve to suffer. But he suffered and he died, which Paul addresses next. And he says, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Literally, it says, and for sin. This word sin here, it's a general word, hamartia, but in the old, in the Greek Old Testament in the Septuagint, this word hamartia or this word sin is used 54 times. And 44 out of the 54 times, it's used in the context of sin offering. It's used in the context of sin offering. And so that is why Bible translators in your Bibles and NASB here, they put it there. And as a sin offering or as for a sin offering or as an offering for sin. 
Now, what is sin offering? Think about it. What is sin offering? We read Hebrews chapter 9, kind of reminded us, right? Go back to the Old Testament context, Leviticus chapter 3. Think about Leviticus chapter 3. The Old Testament believer, he comes into the tabernacle and he's bringing in a, a bull behind him. And this bull is not like any other bull. This bull is perfect, without any blemish. And he knows this bull, probably spent some time with this bull. And the man suddenly takes this bull right there before the tabernacle and he lays his hand on the bull and he slays this bull. The man does it. The worshiper does it. Then the priest, what he does is he takes the, the blood that's dripping from the bull and he takes this blood and he goes to the tabernacle, he dips his finger and he sprinkles it seven times before the veil that we read about in Hebrews chapter 9. And then he comes up to the altar of incense and he touches the horns with the blood and then he pours the rest of the blood out by the altar. And then the worshiper, that would be you, you would come in, you would take this bull, you would lay it and you would gut it. Not the priest, you would do it. You would gut the priest, or you don't, you don't gut the priest. You gut the bull, it'd be really bad. And you would have a mediator there. You would gut the bull and you would separate kidney, liver, and all the fat, right, from the rest of the bull. And then the priest would take all of that and he would offer it up to the Lord. He would offer, the priest does it on your behalf, offering it up to the Lord. And then what you would do as a worshiper, you would take all, I mean, imagine the mess. Imagine the scene. You would gather all of this up now with Levites, and I don't know what you would do. You'd probably take it in the basin or maybe just grab it all, and you would walk out with all of this outside of the camp, far from the camp. You would take some heifer or some, some um, wood with you. You would throw it on top, and then you would burn it all outside the camp, not inside, but outside of the camp. Everything would be consumed by fire. This is an offering for sin, according to Leviticus chapter 3. Now, Scripture here tells us and elsewhere that this here that we just described is actually pointing to some other offering, some other final offering, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is sent from heaven to become the fulfillment of the sin offering. And this Lamb not only takes the sin of Israel away, this man, this Lamb, he would take the sins of all the people who would ever place their faith in Christ. Think about this, Romans 3, and as an offering for sin. Whose sin? Whose sin? He just said that he appeared, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So it wasn't his sin, whose sin? It was our sin, and it is very clear. Already in Romans 4, 25, Paul said that he was delivered over for our transgressions. Our transgressions. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Galatians 1.4, he 
gave himself for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. That's us, friends. That's us. Christ the just for the unjust. That's us. Jesus had no sin. It is our sin that was judged and condemned in the death of Christ. Why did he come? Why did the Father send his Son? This is Very, very important. Friends, beloved, Jesus did not come to become someone's hero. Jesus did not come to become someone's role model. Because sinners, they don't need heroes. Sinners, they don't need role models. Sinners need a savior. And that is why throughout the gospels, Jesus would often repeat, I did not come for this, I came for that. And so why did he come? He came in order to save. He came in order to redeem. He came in order to die. To seek and to save by becoming a sin offering for us. And then here is the main proposition. He condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh. In whose flesh? In Christ's flesh, in Christ's body. God executed the final sentence of condemnation on the sin of everyone who is what? In Jesus Christ, verse one. No condemnation for you if you're in Jesus Christ because he condemned sin There's no double jeopardy. God, friends, found sin guilty and sentenced sin to be finally punished through the death of his son. Sin is condemned. You are free to go. Why? He did it. God did it. And notice something else here, and I think this is very important. And I've been repeating it again. God does it. What do I mean by that? God rescues us from God. God sent his son so that he would, the son would rescue us from God. Unlike the Old Testament worshiper who would come to the animal and who would slay the animal and who would gut the animal, right? It is not we who laid our hands on the head of Christ. It is true that our sins were laid on Christ, right? He died for our sins. We just affirm that. But do you remember what Isaiah 53 teaches? You were pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Who? You know the father. The father was pleased to send his son, and the father was pleased to crush his son, so that you and I would be set free. Father laid his hands on the head of Christ. He laid all of our iniquities on him, on Jesus who is holy, who is undefiled, who is separate from sinners. Friends, and I think this is very important. It is not as though the father is angry with sinners and the son loves sinners and he steps to rescue us from the angry father. That is not what's going on here. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the very opposite is true. God does it. 
triune God accomplishes our salvation. The Father, Son, and the Spirit. God sent his Son. The Father sent the Son. God poured out his wrath on his Son in order to condemn sin. Jesus doesn't save us from God. God saves us from God. When you think of the cross, don't just consider the the love of the Son rescuing us from the Father's anger. Think of the love of God saving us from the wrath of God. He does it. He did it all. If the Father is angry with sin, so is the Son. So is the Son. The Father loves and cares for the sinner, and so does the Son. So does Christ. He went around and said, the Father, me and the Father are one. In, in, in John, Gospel of John 1.18 says that I, I show you the heart of the Father. We're, we, we're the same. God does it. Friends, this is the good news. This is the best news. God took care of our sins. The Father sent his Son to pay the penalty for our sin. And that brings us to verse 4 now, which states the purpose for which God has condemned sin in the flesh. God sent his son, verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so here's our second point. The son fulfilled the requirement of the law as our substitute. The son fulfilled the requirement of the law as our substitute. Now, as we've already observed here, Jesus becomes our substitute for sin. So instead of us receiving condemnation and final separation, no, Jesus receives this condemnation. He bears the wrath of God for us, for our sins. But there's another side to this equation. It is not just enough to have your sins paid for and forgiven, right? To bring like, um, uh, think about your bank account, right? Um, you have $10, but you want to buy something for 100 and you swipe the card, you go negative 90. Overdraft. Overdraft. You have sinned. You went into negative. And so it's not just enough to right, bring your account back to balance, which is zero, right? But for you to have perfect righteousness, positive righteousness, Because without positive righteousness, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You must be perfect. So it's not just enough to pay for your sins, but you have to start working. You have to start accumulating good things. Who does that for you? Who brings your account not just to zero from negative, but infinite positive? Gives you millions and billions and trillions that you can ever spend. Who does that? God does that. How does he do it? In Christ. In Christ. Now, verse 4, admittedly, is a hotly debated verse. Many scholars and theologians, they understand this verse, verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. They understand this to refer to the obedience of a believer, of a Christian as they walk in the spirits or walk by the spirit. So the Holy Spirit then enables them to obey God's law. 
Thus, they refer to this verse as teaching sanctification or teaching progressive sanctification. But others, they point out that even with the Spirit's power, no believer can do what this verse tells you, fulfill, might be fulfilled. No one can fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law. You could keep the whole thing. And James 2.10 says, and yet stumble in one, you're done. You're done. It disqualifies you forever. So you probably know which way I'm leaning since I gave you the, the point here. The son fulfilled the requirement of the law as our substitute. The son does it. And, and for a few reasons here, a couple at least. First, this requirement uh, literally is righteousness, like righteous requirement. It's, it's the word that's translated as justification in verse 5, for instance. When we read verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. That's the same word again that's used here. Same thing in 18. One act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. The law demands perfection. What kind of perfection does the law demand? Peep perfection. Perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual. And friends, you and I don't have it. That's what verse 3 at the beginning went on to illustrate. And even as believers indwelled by the Spirit, we cannot fulfill the law because we still muck around with sin. Now, the second I want you to see here, it says so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us might be fulfilled. This is a passive verb here that points to, to something that, uh, not to something that we are to do, but something that is done in and for us, might be fulfilled. It is done on our behalf. And so only Christ then completely fulfills the law by his perfect obedience and sacrificial death. So, so I think that this verse First part of verse four, it is still dealing with justification. This is what's been done for you. And then verse uh, 4b now, who do not walk according to the, uh, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit now deals with the ramification of your justification, the result of your justification. This is now what you do, but we'll get to that in, in just a second. This here is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Only God in his son can justify you. God sent his son that he might become our substitute in fulfilling all the requirements of the law and to die for us. Think about this. I'm sure you've contemplated this. Why did Jesus have to be born as a baby, right? And not just come when he's 33 years old, ready to go, you know, just descend from heaven, straight on the cross, die, spend three days, right, and be gone. Why? This is, this is very important. Because his life, friends, mattered as much as his death, right? He, he lived a life we could not live. We, we sinned as infants, we sinned as toddlers, we, we sinned as adolescents, as teenagers, as adults, but Jesus lived through all of these stages and never sinned. 
and he accumulated righteousness. And because of what he did, he now is able to grant to us and God now, through his son, considers us as if we have never sinned. And that is not true. We have sinned and we continue to sin. But because we're in Christ, remember we're clothed in Christ, we are now accepted in Christ. That is why we can be declared righteous. This is not an effused righteousness. This is a declarative righteousness. He tells you that you are, you're perfect now. He tells you that you're justified, not your own, through his son. Romans 3, he already said that in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. You are viewed and accepted as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, and therefore there is now no more condemnation. God views you through the lens of his son. You are clothed in Christ. He did everything perfectly for you. This is the message of Romans 8, 1 through 4. So then the real question here is not whether or not you are loved, whether or not you are accepted, whether or not you are forgiven. That's not the question. The real question is whether or not you are in Christ. The real question is have you transferred your trust to Christ? Because if you have, then you're accepted. If you haven't, then fear. Fear because there's still condemnation. For you, have you taken refuge in Jesus Christ because he is the only sure refuge? No other will do. Gospel is the announcement of good news available in Christ. No condemnation because Jesus is a sin bearer and your source of righteousness. Don't fear, beloved. Don't fear. There's no condemnation. And that is why Paul will go on to say in verse 34, of chapter eight, who is the one who condemns? Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died for you. There's nobody left to condemn you. But Paul is not done yet. The, this entire introduction is building to this large section here, really the heart of Romans chapter eight, and it is the life in the spirit. Life in the spirit. So how does faith in this one, how does um, belief in Jesus make a difference in our life, really, is what we're after. Well, Paul will say that justification makes a huge difference because justification leads to sanctification. A life, a justified life, right, will lead you to live for Jesus and not for self. That is why I made this proposition that God takes care of our sins and becomes our substitute so that we might live for our Savior. Because he goes on and he says this in verse 4. Who? Who? He describes. He doesn't command you. He doesn't do what he does in Galatians, walk by the Spirit. He doesn't tell you that. He just simply says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we're going to spend the next three probably weeks talking about verses uh, five through and on down. And so I just want to make this one brief observation here. Point three, the Spirit births and directs us to live for our Savior. Here again, we're introduced to the Spirit. The triune God, right? The entire Trinity is involved in restoring you from your sin. Isn't that amazing? 
the Spirit. According to verse 2, the Spirit applies the work of Christ and makes you alive. He is the Spirit of life. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. That's the work of the Spirit. He births us into the family of God. But the Spirit not only births you, He directs you also. He is now your guide who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This walk means this steady progress towards a goal. You have a goal, right? There's an agenda, and you're pursuing this agenda, To walk according to the Spirit then means that you are walking and the Spirit is controlling you to value something else, to value Christ. Because think about this, what is the goal of the Spirit? The goal of the Spirit is always to glorify the Son. That's why He was sent, right? The Spirit was sent to glorify the Son and He leads the believer to do the same thing, to live for the Savior, to live for Christ. And you see that everywhere, the implication of your salvation. Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Great declaration. Grace, that's the gospel. But it results in a life of walking in good works. Verse 10, there's an expectation there. And he tells you that it always happens because of the Spirit's work. The Spirit leads you. Why? Do we walk then by the Spirit? Why do we walk to please the Lord? And friends, this is very important. We walk to please the Lord, not for acceptance, but out of gratitude. Mark this, write this down. We do not walk anymore for acceptance, but out of gratitude. The gospel enables us, because of the work of the Spirit, to please the Lord. I love what this quote, it's attributed to John Bunyan, but... I'm not sure, Um, says this, run, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Friend, gospel actually does something. Faith in Christ is real It's effective, why? Because you have the Spirit who actually accomplishes things for you, in you, compels you to do something. And he will go on to explain in verses five through 13 the implication of our sanctification. So we'll look at that next time. But I just wanna leave you with this. Knowing this gospel, this glorious truth that Christ Jesus is our substitute who pleased God fully for us, here's here's what we need to do constantly. Think through this. When you go out this afternoon or when you wake up tomorrow or the next day, don't ever, ever, ever try to earn God's favor. Don't ever earn God's favor. When you read, when you pray, when you love, when when you serve, when someone like me comes up to you and says, hey, we have a need in this ministry or that ministry. Would you like to, you know, uh, step up and serve? Don't ever think, oh man, yeah, I'm going to be that much more pleasing to the Lord. I'm going to earn his favor. Don't ever try to earn his favor. Why? Because, friends, you cannot be any more accepted, you cannot be any more loved, you cannot be any more forgiven, you cannot be any more blessed than you are already if you're in Christ. You're either in or out. That's it. 
And I think it's, we, we understand it. Like, I understand this, but I don't understand this. I'm still deep down in me. I'm like, oh, Lord, this was a great day. Why was this a great day? Oh, because I got to do some stuff for the Lord, so God must be excited with me. That's what we do. But the declaration of Romans 8 is you don't do that because he did it all for you. Don't fear of being abandoned. No attempts at earning his favor. Our kids don't do that to us, do they? Your son or your daughter, they take out trash and they come up to you and say, oh, dad, I took out the trash. Can I still be your son for the next week? What? What? Or like, you know, I'll I'll go clean my room and I'll clean my room for the next week. Will, Will you still love me as your son or as your daughter? You'd be like, man, what's wrong with you, right? You're my daughter. You're my son regardless. I love when you do it, but that's not why you're doing it. This is very perverse. It's perverse like in our families what to speak of. God's view on this. But we often live our lives like that. We live our lives more like Catholics than evangelicals. Right? We do stuff for the Lord. We, we, we do penance. When we sin on Tuesday, we want to make it up on Wednesday. By good things. To be accepted. Friends, the free gospel of grace has no room for us thinking that we can offer something to God so as to please him. It actually is offensive to God. What do we do when we sin? What do we do when we sin? Scripture tells us what we do. Verse 1 of, verse 9 of 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. He is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. God doesn't want us to sin. God saved us for us to be holy. That's the goal. He doesn't want us to sin. And, And John is writing. He said, I'm writing these things so that you do not sin. And if anyone sins, it's the reality. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. What do you do when you sin? You realize that God, God's justice is satisfied. That Jesus turned God's wrath away from you. He is the propitiation. He appeased. He turned God's wrath from you on himself and he took care of it. Sin is now condemned. You are accepted. You go confess your sin that you don't live up to the standard. And you pursue following and loving Christ. Confess and honor Christ. Why do you confess? Because you love Christ, because your life doesn't conform to how he wants you and enabled you to live. Enabled you, you actually can live a life that is pleasing to God. But not to earn his favor. Not to earn his favor. Only 
Jesus can earn God's favor. And the good news is, you're favored one. You're the beloved. Trust him. Now, we'll, in the next couple of weeks, we will look at what it means to walk by the Spirit and trust him as we deal with the reality of our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing good news that, that Jesus paid it all, and then we sing all to him I owe. Uh, my whole life, everything must be lived, as Paul will later on write in Romans 12, offer it up in, in view of God's mercies, offer it up. And the way we do it is we constantly renew our minds in this gospel truth so that we would then behave in a manner that reflects this truth. Lord, help us, I pray, to please you this week. Um, help us to live for you. And when we fail, not to make atonement for our sins, but to come to you as our loving Father who covered all these sins. We praise you. We ask these things for your glory and our growth. Amen.